one thing I want to say to all writers is that we are trying not just to solve our own riddles. It's a form of profound, potentially profound entertainment. And we are trying to give a gift to the reader. And I try to give a gift to the reader in some way, in every sentence, even just by torquing a little the way language is used, never being satisfied with a cliche, never being satisfied with yada, yada, yada. Um, and I became particularly aware of that when I was working on The Brothers K, which is a much tighter book than The River Y, because if if you're going yada, yada on page 570, somebody's going to throw that fucker across the room <laughs> and not even use it for a doorstop. And so even more so with Sun House, I have really uh, worked for years to hone it. This is season one of the Free Flow podcast, a media project of Free Flow Institute. I'm Chandra Brown, founder and director of Free Flow Institute. Welcome to the Free Flow podcast a show that takes today's best storytellers outside into their favorite wild places for conversations about craft, conservation, and the creative life. On today's episode, our guest is David James Duncan, author and co-author of many incredible books, including the award-winning novels The River Y and The Brothers K, which he and producer Rick White discussed today and also the forthcoming novel, Sun House, from which you'll hear David read the first two pages. This is no small thing, since this is the very first reading he's done from Sun House, a 1,200-page book he's been working on for 14 years. David led a Free Flow Institute workshop on the Blackfoot River in 2019, and will also lead a workshop on the Salmon River in 2022. Rick and David's conversation took place in a small He's apple orchard near David's writing cabin in Missoula, Montana. You became a fiction writer at age 29 after long and painstaking apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what that looks like for you or what it looked like for you? Yeah, well, I, I lost my brother, who was my closest friend and protector and all of that when I was 13 and spent about two and a half years not too far from hell. Uh, it was made worse by uh, Christians in particular, Christian clerics. Uh, the wonderful Anne Lamott says, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. And when my brother was only dying, he had no chance of recovery. His heart was torn up, <clears throat> he couldn't have another surgery, and then he contracted staph infection. And this young Adventist zealot, I've told this story many times, but he, he sees me sitting in misery. I can't stay in the room with my brother because he's so changed that none of the things that we loved were any longer available. All I could do was watch him suffer 
and wait for him to die with him. And today I could do that, but when I was 13, I just couldn't fucking stay in the room. <clears throat> I stood up to be respectful. I could tell this guy was a man of the Bible because it was right there under his arm, <clears throat> and he grabs me by the shoulders and says, Faith can move mountains. If you pray for your brother hard enough with a pure enough heart, you can save his life. And I had been praying for a long time and prayed for the remaining day and a half of his life. Um, a little part of me was glad that his suffering was over. A little part of me felt like the situation was mysterious, but the Adventists on the matriarchal side of my family uh, were full of those empty certainties. And and as I said somewhere in the Mickey Mantle koan, I finally realized that what I was was pissed. I was really pissed. And um, gave myself to a permi- permission to be a pretty a pretty bad guy for a couple of years, just acting out in my teens. Uh, I regret being needlessly rude to certain people. Uh, you know, I could conjure a few things I did, but the, you can just imagine an out-of-control 16-year-old who always thought, even before tragedy, that it's better to be a smartass than a dumbass. And uh, I was given a novel to read uh, that was extremely ambitious and deep. I'm not going to get into specifics on that, but it created a main line into literature. And my the first literature I was drawn to was really serious and often really dark. Some of the novels uh, I started, well, I had a friend. I had an older friend um, whose name was John, same as my brother, who was a really smart guy, and he was two years ahead of me. And in high school, you never make friends uh, with someone two years ahead. But So anyway, this guy ends up at Stanford, who is a brilliant student of the humanities and philosophy and metaphysics and all these things I was interested in. <clears throat> and I'm a, I'm a senior in high school reading the Stanford humanities curriculum when he would send me the books. And uh, carefully cultivating uh, the image of a ne'er-do-well uh, my grade point average just falling through the floor. Um, I was lucky enough to have a student teacher. Um, she was in a master's program at Portland State who knew I was smart and was very deliberately committing academic suicide <clears throat> because I'd fallen in love with literature. And with her recommending that I be interviewed, I got into the University of Scholars program at Portland State that was the model for Evergreen University where you could focus on your area of interest and I didn't have to do the science requirement and I thank God did not have to do the math requirement. I just knew that I didn't know enough to study literature on my own and be able to get deep enough into the mechanics of it uh, to be able to create it. And I worked with some really great uh, professors and, and at the same time was balancing that with all these different jobs. I mowed lawns for seven years professionally, took care of people, you know, landscaping. Uh, okay, I'm not getting into the shit jobs because really that's a short story. I had every kind of blue collar shit job there is for 12 years. 
and that was my grad school. I uh, learned what it is to bartend, to work in a plastics factory, to drive trucks, uh, to do every kind of delivery job. Um, but one of the jobs I got was caretaking uh, and inholding in the Wallawa Whitman National F uh, Forest at 7,500 feet way up in the Wallawa Mountains for 100 days. For 100 days I was alone in the Wallawas when I was 19. That was the first big godsend. And then the next big godsend was, well, there were several godsends. There have been godsends all my life. I could pick a different <laughs> word. The mystery has been very kind to me. <clears throat> um, you know what would help before we get too deep in the interview is if you'll just describe and tell me where we are. Um, it'll help us help kind of set the scene. Yeah. We're in uh, an area in Missoula called Target Range, which is kind of all the territory uh, to the other side of um, reserve to the west, all the way to the Bitterroot River and uh, our one little crossing place, the McClay Bridge, which is one lane and I hope lives forever and doesn't get replaced by some ab abomination that causes more of Missoula to turn into a squalid suburb. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. <laughs> and Target Range, it's really a wonderful neighborhood. It's, it's still kind of like uh, agrarian. A lot of really serious gardens and orchards and people who love them. And uh, I've really enjoyed the friendliness. I've, I'm here on kind of an extended work retreat, living in a little cabin. Uh, the deer population's enormous. The coyotes howl every night here in a way that I never hear them anymore uh, at my place on Lolo Creek because the good red state Montanans shot them all <laughs> and then wonder why the voles and mice are devouring their, <laughs> their hay and alfalfa fields. But, oh, well. Um, <laughs> So you um, you started and abandoned a novel that wasn't necessarily in your voice. I think uh, in an interview I, I saw that you called it uh, some. Uh, you had a good term for it about the, the it was kind of an anti-suburban. You were gonna you were gonna solve all the problems of suburbia. <laughs> <laughs> that, that must be the novel that I was talking about that that ended up in a landfill on Southeast Eighty Second in Portland. Um, the one that was. I was trying to not write a novel, as I once put it, that would just tear the sutures out of a fresh facelift. <laughs> <laughs> but then these damned fishing scenes <laughs> started fucking up my dark story. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I got to just get this fishing shit out of my system. And I love to fish. I was... I was really a subsistence sport fisherman. I caught tons of whitefish on the Deschutes River, and I would smoke those. And I'd go to the coast streams in the fall and catch a whole bunch of jacks, which are hatchery, really most mostly a hatchery creation. And you could keep ten and, uh, coho jacks and two coho adults, and that was do that twice, and you've got enough salmon for uh, for the winter. Um, and so I just started writing, and within a very short amount of time. I'm remembering between three and four months. I had 300 pages and it was pretty damn funny. And then I also was trying to figure out how would, 
how would you work with rivers and fish as a as a symbol or with a rod or with the line <clears throat> and um, there are so many different ways of, of using water uh, and, and many people have done that go ahead if you, there's more you want I was just gonna say but it should be noted at this time that there was not much other than McLean's a river runs through it out there in terms of fly yeah. fishing literature and yeah and, and McLean dealt beautifully with the kind of syntax of his father's Anglican past and uh, Book of Common Prayer, King James Bible, Shakespeare, or you can feel all of those. Whereas I was more of a mutt who'd read some really serious things that I revered, like the Tao Te Ching, but also way more Kerouac than was good for me. But luckily, all of Snyder, too. All of Snyder from the beginning. If you're, if you're going to sit for 100 days out somewhere, you ought to at least have some Kerouac and Snyder. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're good guys to be in the mountains. Well, Kerouac, uh, I tried to imitate Kerouac, but just wasn't drawn to it. The only Kerouac I would have been interested in imitating were like when he would get into get up on the mountain with Jaffe Ryder and Dharma Bums and what I've done with that since. I mean, the novel I've, I'm just finishing, uh, Sun House, is loaded with high elevation stuff. N- none of it climbing. It's all mountaineering and the mystique of the mountains that you find in, I think, probably Gary Snyder's favorite scripture, which is uh, Ai Dogen, the Zen master who started Soho Zen, uh, Mountains and Water Sutra. I read that once a year. Um, I mean, a normal high school kid doesn't want to go up in the mountains alone for 10 days and fast for a week uh, after the senior all-night party, you know. And I wanted nothing more than that. And it was because of information that was filtering in in as just this total mystery and wonder from the time I was really young. So there just has always been an element that led me to feel from the start that my writing was a spiritual practice. I mean, the way it helped me find my voice, uh, find a voice that is basically still my voice. I do a lot of different things with syntax through the years, it changes, but it's still basically the voice in Riverwise is fairly similar. How much, um, let's see, how did you, How do you have any specifics as far as finding that voice and style or when you know that you've found, when you've touched on something, or when you're riding in a, you know, in the wrong direction, maybe uh, when you when you've when you've gone down a path sixty pages and you know you have to just toss it aside. Um, yeah, I've, I've tossed aside many sixty-page paths. <laughs> um, I, I really went through a huge amount of all of that in inside the three and a half years I spent writing the River Y. <clears throat> the last novel I read before I started River Y, or at least very close to when I started it, was Great Expectations. <clears throat> Great Expectations is one of the Dickens novels that was not serialized in a paper. So it was much more skillfully edited and, and tightly, uh, tightly woven. And the prose rhythms that Dickens has there are the prose rhythms of the the way 
<clears throat> that Gus deals with um, H2O, and I, H2O was a parody of a then a once famous fly fisherman named Ernest Schweibert, who I wouldn't say anything bad about him except he just was so pretentious. <clears throat> and another nice thing that happened is the fun that I was poking at Schweibert and other how-to guys who talk about the places they go fish, so they give away all their secrets. <clears throat> so they're just—it's like there's no nothing sacrosanct about a really delicate little fishery and add uh, computer technology to that and some motherfucker catches one steelhead in a pool somewhere and there's 30 anglers there the next morning because he wrote about it online I mean it's just ridiculous to <clears throat> reveal something that could just drive the thing we love into complete non-existence through a f fucking silicon technology and so I just don't do it. Damn, it's on a different trajectory. I got sidetracked. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good one. We can go down that one all day long. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should go back to that question just a little <clears throat> because it's interesting. I was writing in a Dickensian in English prose, and I was writing when Ma would talk like a ranch brat. So I had two really extreme, uh, <clears throat> extreme forms of language, but Gus... He could imitate a kind of Dickensian narration in, in unpacking his early life, but he had no voice of his own. And it was only after uh, he started suffering, discovered the isolation and even sanity threatening that, that goes with uh, solitude. So he's grappling, and then he gets his heart broken, and in the process of the heartbreak and the the genuine suffering and the, the anvilade the first like corpse of a fisherman that he is confronting by saving it from washing it out to sea and dragging it up on a dock and um he just the narration changes and as the narration changed it was it was as gus was finding his gus voice i was finding my david voice it just happened organically Suddenly there was just a whole different way of talking that I engage when it just moves into the mode of a quest myth. And so then you're, you're in the realm of mythology and suddenly I'm writing seriously about the things that I love the most about writing for the first time. So it's really just the whole experience of the three and a half years, uh, it was, that was my graduate school. Uh, that and all those funky jobs that I had. How much does how much do you think those jobs played into your your training? Like, do you do you feel like you could have written that without having suffered? No, it in those was jobs? very important. I felt confident if I want to if I want to portray a a truck driver or a, a fundamentalist Christian or a, a snobby restaurant owner or a admirable restaurant owner or what the ambiance is like in almost any kind of bar, or uh, what uh, hard, uh, repetitive manual labor can sometimes simple down the mind in a way that if your mind's been too busy, it can be really soothing. Uh, just all these little things that, that rednecks don't know they know, because uh, they're not writers, and they're, they're not paid to be reflective. 
But if you're a naturally reflective person, I mean, you, uh, I can reflect on any number of the jobs I had, and it's it's interesting. But when I couldn't find a publisher, um, I'd been driving cardboard recycling trucks and had a chauffeur's license, and so I took the test to become a TriMet bus driver. And I just thought, if I can't publish the River Y, I feel like it was a pretty good book. I don't. I guess I don't know what a good book is to a New York publisher or or apparently even university presses. Uh, so I'd rather just save money, buy a drift boat trailer pick up and become a fishing guide even though uh, I already had a slight sense of how difficult it would be for my personality. Um, fishing guides are able, they, they're really, I think they even have a pride and it's a real accomplishment. I mean it's, I think of this as a spiritual quality of a lot of spiritual, of fishing guides is they can be gracious even to assholes or gracious to people with hopeful I mean hopeless fishing problems like they can't cast 20 feet so every fish in the river is just gone by the time a drift boat is 20 feet away there's no fish is going to rise to a and and then they start blaming the guide for uh so well yeah gosh I'll change your fly you know (laughs) it was like yeah gosh why don't you just get the fuck out of my boat I want to read the first two pages of Sunhouse for starters, just because I've, I don't know that I've read from Sunhouse. I don't think I have. Uh, I really love comedy, but uh, times are dark and there are big questions that haunt us all. And so I just wanted to really get my hooks into a big a spiritual paradox, right? To start, and I start, I always start chapters with an epigram because I love how literature is built out of literature. I love how you can just read 20 words by some writer and it's a homeopathic dose of somebody who you can tell as you start reading the author. The author has been dancing with that writer for decades and there's this wonderful interactive uh, thing that kind of defies the whole idea of copyright or intellectual property. We're, We're all wrestling with so many of the, so many similar things. So anyway, um, the epigram to open is one of the little run of sentences that's made Annie Dillard justifiably famous. Assume you write for an audience consisting solely of terminal patients. That is, after all, the case. What would you begin writing if you knew you would die soon? What could you say to a dying person that would not enrage by its triviality? Sunhouse, Chapter 1. Dead Mother's Son. Extremely implausible accidents do not feel innocent. When, for instance, an inch-long steel bolt shook loose and fell from an Aero Mexico DC-8 cruising at 38,000 feet, drifted seven miles to earth, and embedded itself in the skull of an eight-year-old girl hoeing weeds with her widower father in a Mexican cornfield, killing her almost instantly. The term freak accident 
did not begin to appease. The minds of everyone who loved the girl groped for explanations. A thunderhead shook things loose. An airline skimped on maintenance inspections. A skilled maintenance man, distracted by a co-worker's tale of a secret affair, failed to torque down the bolt despite the thousands he'd faithfully inspected. But no rational explanation, not even a correct one, purges the preposterousness from the event. An inch-long bolt, seven miles, the perfect timing, the tiny target. Chance veered so far out of its way to kill this child that some sort of premeditated attack seemed to have been committed. The question then became, by whom? Who is the unseen attacker? Destiny? Fate? God? One wants to know, and one doesn't want to know. Because say it is God. Say that not a sparrow or man-made meteor falls without his knowledge. Suppose the winds are his breath and his exhalations oh so carefully steered the steel throughout its drifting, twisting, high-speed fall. Now say you're the girl's father. Suppose you call out to your daughter when she drops in the dirt, wondering what crazy game she's playing, smiling at her histrionics as she briefly, briefly writhes, then lies perfectly still. Suppose that as the game grows protracted, you grow irritated, stroll over to her and find a small blood-filled cavity amid the raven hair you braided that morning. Suppose you look skyward as you shatter and glimpse miles above, not even the departing jet, but only a fast vanishing contrail. Now start trying to love that all-knowing, oh-so-careful God. That took you into another level. Did you start writing after the River Why? Were you writing mostly nonfiction, or did you... After the River Y, I wrote a collection of short stories. Uh, they were coming fast. I had 12 of them. I'd spent six months on them, and I had the 12 stories on a floppy drive when lightning struck the power wire between the city of Tillamook and my writing shack. It fried the disc. So that was my second book. <laughs> Talk about grief. <laughs> One of the short stories which was in an advanced enough stage that I was able to recover it was just a scene with a family with four sons um, watching the Ed Sullivan show on TV. And the father has been in injured at the factory and... Uh, as they're watching TV, the personalities of the boys are really strong and really varied. And um, without that collection to polish, I just looked at that one story and it riveted me. And I said, who are these guys? Why is this family acting the way it's acting? Um, and that, it was, that was the main cast of the Brothers K of my, uh, what I call my, uh, my 19th century Russian baseball novel. <laughs> and um, that book was really hard to write, but 
it achieves uh, it achieves things that I, I never thought I'd be able to accomplish as a writer. The wedding of, of humor and uh, real grief, and <clears throat> I really felt I loved War and Peace. I read it when I was, I think, a freshman, and my teacher was Charles Le Guin, Ursula's husband, and I felt like when the Brothers K really started to gel. I'd worked on it for six years and then Adrian was pregnant and I knew that my time was running out. And um, I went on this binge where I was working 12 hour days, uh, nine days in a row, then I'd collapse, take three days off. And um, in the last, not very long, less than a year or maybe a year I can't remember I've told this story too many times I'm starting to garble it <laughs> but I uh, wrote 450 pages in a fairly short wrote or polished sloppy into good uh, pages it just the whole the novel just gelled in a way that I've, I've the greatest writing experience I've ever had um, there's things I really love in Sun House and it's obscenely ambitious too but it has never come in the flow state the way Brothers K did. I'd say, I mean, it's a great honor to be able to tell you that Papa Thumb is one of one of the fictional moral heroes that I refer to and, and, and go back to in my life in mm. difficult times mm. to decide right or wrong, mm. good or bad decisions Man, thank that you. I make. Yeah. And, and I've been, rarely do I do I experience such a range of emotions as viscerally as I did the first time I read it and the second time I read it and the third time I read it <laughs> and forced it upon all of my friends and family and tried to make make sure that they were having all of those same emotions. So. It's really right. It's really weird, Rick, right here where we're sitting. Anita has friends who come and they sit under those trees and it was like I'd be coming back and forth and her friends would like, you wrote the Brothers K? <laughs> That's the only book I have on my Kindle. <laughs> it's getting to be a, a, a danger zone right over there under the, those trees. <laughs> yeah, the um, the American father, when I started writing Brothers K, was being represented by Homer Simpson and a bunch of incestuous just diabolical creeps those were the fathers that were being published pretty heavily um, at the time I began I finished in 92 minus 7 so it's mid 80s and um, I knew all these guys and I myself was a young father who we were all flawed and we were all trying our bloody best um, for our families, we all adored our children and were uh, waiting through the difficulties of marriage with all the love and patience we could muster, make it, lots of mistakes being made all around. Uh, but it was just so far from those diabolical fathers uh, and Homer Simpson that I just bloody wanted to portray the kind of father that I was seeing in, in my peers and um, and Papa Toe was born and 
Did I say pop a thumb? I hope I didn't. Well, well it was a thumb. <laughs> <laughs> His toe became a thumb. Gosh, how embarrassing. <laughs> yes, it did. It did, pop a toe. So you're right either way. Yes. No yes. problem. He was, oh man, the scene with Cade in the truck, it's just, I mean, it's so It's so real, and I can't remember who I, who I was reading, was saying that, you know, it transcends when you can take a, a regular person and give them mythical proportions, you know, mm. which is what I feel like with the brothers you did with, uh, with that whole family, um, and why it resonates on such a level, you know, such a different level. I'm, I'm happy to hear that because, you know, what creates myth is usually a people, uh, and a lot of centuries, but something I've been talking about in Sun House is that so much so much meaning has been lost so much cynicism has been generated so fast in these late days of the failing uh, American nation, nation state and of just global industrialism in general uh, as Butterfly Hill says the good thing about the unsustainable is it's not sustainable and this is this is this way of living is on its way out and it's in its death throes and the thrashing is violent and that dimension, I feel like I was after it in awkward ways in River Y, but I just felt like I entered it. Like when Everett can be watching buttercups wilting in a Campbell's soup can and be viscerally experiencing his incredibly loving kind, naive, sweet, joyous brother Irwin receiving uh, meds and electroshock uh, from the United States Army in the buttercups. That just, that kind of thing was just flowing through. Uh, I'd been with this family long enough and it just was coming in a, a steady flow like I've, I've never, fin- I've never written anywhere near 450 pages. And I mean, a, a good year for me is maybe 180 polished pages and um yeah so that's that was a memorable thing how you said it's it originated as a short story how where did those characters come from the tensions between dimitri alyosha and ivan karmatsov that but that was really the only uh the only thing from the brothers karmatsov that I was thinking about because, and I, I didn't ever read the Brothers Karamazov while I was writing the Brothers K. I'd read it when I was like 19 and I didn't reread it because I didn't want it in my head because I knew that I was trying to achieve something that was more akin to War and Peace. And I knew that if I had a title that even suggested any comparison at all to War and Peace, they would put my head on a golf tee and drive it 400 yards down the critical fairway. And uh, so I uh, just carefully referenced Karamazov in the superficial way of the K, its nickname, the Brothers K, standing for K, the symbol for the strikeout, and then all the ways that the failures of the brothers allow their mythological and psycho-spiritual success, the the continuation of love in an extremely challenged family. Uh, yeah, that's what I was 
it's what I was hunting for. So when you're riding, um, when you sit down on an average day, like like the Brothers K, that that might have been an exception when you're when you're just on fire and you get you get in the flow and you go for 450 pages. But say you're say you're wrestling with another novel, Sunhouse, right now. Do you intersperse with nonfiction? Do you do you take breaks from from certain ways? How do you know what it is that you need to write when? I'm going to say a couple of things here. One is, <clears throat> Sunhouse is a 1,200-page manuscript. I feel like it, it's been like a heavyweight fight, and I've been knocked out at least five times. And um, I will never write another long novel. I have made an agreement with my beloved wife, and I will not do it. Um, I tend to write <clears throat> things that just fit in certain categories. And a long time ago, a friend of mine in town, John Bateman, the builder, is a longtime friend. He was a he's a student of mine during the one semester I taught at U of M, and he's a wonderful carpenter. And when he was doing some work for us, I asked him to make me twelve just open top cedar boxes uh, in which uh, 11 by 14 inch pages fit very nicely with a little room to reach all the way to the bottom of the box and these 12 boxes became categories and the 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 only form I can write skillfully in fiction is long form is the novella Riverwise made of four novellas, Brothers Kay's made of six novellas, and Sunhouse is made of seven novellas. And if those three books are in bookstores, when I croak, I will feel like I did my work. Um, but there's all these other kinds of writing that I really love, and I also love to correspond with people. And these boxes just fill. It's like we're sitting here in an orchard. It's like I put the box out in the orchard and I just look one day and all I have to do is pick up the fruit and put it in the box. And River Teeth took 11 months to put together. Um, My Story is Told by Water took nine months to put together. And God Laughs and Plays took three months to put together. That's incredible. Sunhouse is so ambitious and I've worked on it so long and it's, so to speak, just clogged the chute. And I have five manuscripts in an advanced stage of development that I'll be working on next that I hope will be like, I don't expect many more like God Laughs and Plays, but it may be in that range of uh, nine months to uh, a year, uh, I could complete these collections, essays slash memoirs, um, short stories, and I have a lot of uh, just solo novellas. And so I've got my work cut out for me but I want to go from um, 50 to 70 hour weeks to like 5 to 15 hour weeks (laughs) and I want to take a whole year off reacquaint myself with things like the Salmon River we hope to float down if, if the end of COVID comes in time Do you find writing nonfiction easier, harder I find it a lot easier. A lot easier. The the thing that's really discouraging in a long novel is that you can, I've got I've gone on an absolute tear for like nine months, and what that means is you got this much of a thing that's this deep. You know, I'm I'm making gestures with my fingers where I'm showing you a stack a half an inch high versus a stack six inches high, which is about what Sun House is, and. Um, 
so then you've had this big experience and then no one even sees what you did and you're not sharing it with the people you love and with Sunhouse especially I just think a lot of people start what happened to Duncan did he lose his mind is he dead I think he's probably dead he seemed like a wordy guy he was gonna come out with something more uh, yeah and uh, I just don't want to I don't ever want to check out um, of larger community and larger life and particularly with my family and closest friends and with and in a very real way with uh, mountains and rivers I don't want to check out to the degree that I had to to be able to write about the things I love I had to divorce myself from them way too much of the time and that I've experienced all of that I ever want that phase of my life is over but I think I can post quite a bit of work really seriously working less hours than my uh, wonderful sculptor wife um, so that when she's off work I'm not some zombie coming out of the study after I mean I just don't even know where I am I practically walk into stuff if I've worked a 10 or 12 hour day and that's just not not fair to the, the people I share my life with yeah it, it, it demands that you be completely removed from other things yeah if you're gonna do yeah what you're setting out to do alas that is very true yeah and it yeah i i i feel the same tension and i have not written a 1200 page manuscript (laughs) (laughs) but i have you know secluded myself for a couple of years to Mm -hmm. write Mm -hmm. on form Mm -hmm. which in a in in the same in a different way but also very similar is a withdrawal from from those people mm-hmm. and those things that you love yeah so yeah one thing i like about this decision that i've made to not go long ever again is the kind of work that i have t- to complete would really meshes nicely with the kind of thing that uh chandra and F- free flow are setting up because it I'm writing stuff that's more in keeping with what the students are doing. I mean, to have young, younger, I mean, just any kind of aspiring writers without a ton of experience and talk to them about something like Sun House is really, I think, just kind of horrifying. <laughs> I don't want to horrify them, so I can talk about this, you know, crazy little projects that I have going that are just as crazy as their little projects, and we're all kind of in the same dimension and on the same page. Suppose you're the Jesuit novice from El Norte, summoned in the old Padre's absence to console the mourners at her grave. Suppose that, after heart-sick consideration, you fall back on your Jesuit training, draw a troubled breath, but try to sound confident as, in your stiff foreign Spanish, you tell the girl's father and handful of ragged friends, yours is a terrible loss. I'm more sorry than I can say but God loves those he takes as well as those he leaves behind. His purposes are beyond us. We must trust, even so, that all things are meant to bring us to holiness. Suppose the father grows wild-eyed, leaps forward, and smashes your face repeatedly till you fall to the ground. Say he then sobs, 
you must trust that my fists have brought you to holiness. How can you How can you answer? Some human beings are singled out to suffer agonies of the heart. We don't know why. All we know is that any even slightly confident explanation or consolation we offer in Spanish, English, or any mortal tongue sounds glib in the face of every such event and so merely insults the heart in agony. I could read that second page again. I don't, I don't know why. Okay. <laughs> Just because I was losing my shit. <laughs> I, I think they call that the, an honest emotional moment or something in radio. Um, wow, David, thank you. Pilliated saved me. Yeah, that was beautiful. <laughs> that was wonderful. I love it. We had similar things when, when Chris was reading. Um, uh, we had a, a great blue hair in the, that came through. Yeah, I think part of what I was feeling is it's just been a long time coming to be in a place where I could read that page to somebody. Well, thank you for that. That was that was a true gift that you just gave. Um, received as such. Should we um, maybe walk down to the river? There's some really nice spots along the river down there. That sounds it's great. A really nice time of day, and we've got a beautiful evening, so I'd enjoy that. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. Are you okay in terms of uh, food? You need any ballast? I appreciate that, but I think I'm good. Yeah, I had lunch. Okay. Before I, came. I just carry uh, human dog treats, as Adrian calls them, <laughs> uh, granola bars. <laughs> if you bring an extra one, I might, I might probably. Yeah, I, I have an extra. David Jaden Duncan for your generosity of spirit, time, and for being such a champion of our work here at Free Flow Institute. The second part of this interview is coming soon. For now, thanks to Nate Hedgie and Wartime Blues for our theme music, to the Montana Arts Council, and to the Prop Foundation for their support of Free Flow Podcast. And if you like the Free Flow Podcast and want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about David, visit his website, davidjamesduncan.com. For information on the work we do at Free Flow and or the things we talked about on today's show, check out the show notes at freeflowinstitute.com slash podcast. <laughs>